that a socially anxious individual, that's me, talks about true crime, TV film reviews, and discuss comical social situations. Today is the first episode of True Crime. Now, the thing that has terrified me ever since I was a tiny child was cannibals. I don't know why or when I started having this fear. But man, am I terrified of some cannibals. See, even though I don't remember when that started, I do, however, remember when my anxiety started, which was around when I was seven. For some reason, I don't know why, my sister had a butter knife in her drawer and I convinced myself she was going to kill me in my sleep and eat me. Well, (laughs) that thought aided my insomnia so bad that I had so much sleep deprivation that it turned into me thinking my mom was feeding us human meat. Eventually I crashed and with the sleep and rest I got, I started to think straight again. Anyways, (laughs) that was a fun intro as to what we'll be talking about this evening. Before I start, I do want to give a trigger warning. Although I don't let this become as graphic as it could be. This does involve self-harm, murder, and cannibalism, etc. And I did not want to sensationalize the crimes as much as it has been, so I didn't read. There's two letters in this particular investigation that are very graphic, written by the perpetrator, but I will not be reading those because I do think that it is disgusting. And of course, all of what this person did is disgusting, but I especially don't want in any way to make it seem like it's some kind of horror movie. Like, this is a horrible thing that this person did. And the letters that this person wrote, I refuse to eat with my own mouth. If you look it up, or you probably heard about this story because it is a very popular case. I didn't want to focus so much on popular cases and more lesser known ones, but because this was my number one fear, I did want to make this the first episode, so we'll be talking about Albert Fish. Albert Fish was born in Washington, D.C. on May 19, 1870, to Randall and Ellen Fish. Fish's father was American of English ancestry, and his mother was Scottish-Irish-American. His father was 43 years older than his mother and 75 years old at the time of his birth. Fish was the youngest child and had three living siblings, Walter, Annie, and Edwin. Fish's family had a history of mental illness. His uncle suffered from mania, a brother was confined in a state mental hospital, and his sister was diagnosed with a mental affliction. Remember, this is the 1870s, so there wasn't a lot of advancement on psychology at the time. So that's what we get from that mental affliction. 
and then three other relatives were diagnosed with mental illnesses and his mother had oral and or visual hallucinations. After Randall Fish's father died in the year 1875 due to a sudden heart attack, Ellen, the mother of Fish, put her son in the care of St. John's Orphanage, where he was abused frequently. He began to enjoy the physical pain that brought upon him as punishment. Of his time at the orphanage, Fish remarked, I was there till I was nearly nine. That's where I got started wrong. We were unmercifully whipped and I saw boys doing many things they should not have done. By 1880, his mother had a government job and was able to remove Fish from the orphanage. In 1882, at age 12, he began, he began a relationship with a telegraph boy. The youth introduced Fish to such practices as urolangia, drink, which is drinking urine, and coprophagia, which is eating feces. I'm probably saying that wrong. Fish then began visiting public baths where he could watch other boys undress and spend a great portion of his weekends on these visits. Fish's early crimes started in the year 1890, when he became a prostitute and began raping young boys. In 1898, his mother arranged a marriage for him with Anna Mary Hoffman, who was nine years his junior. They had six children, Albert, Anna, Gertrude, Eugene, John, and Henry Fish. Throughout 1898, as he worked as a house painter, he said he continued molesting children, mostly younger boys, younger age of six. He later recounted an incident in which a male lover took him to Waxworks Museum where Fish was fascinated by the bisection of a particular organ. After that, he became obsessed with sexual mutilation. In 1903, he was arrested for grand larceny, convicted, and incarcerated in Sing Sing. Around 1910, while he was working in Wilmington, Delaware, Fish met a 19-year-old man named Thomas Kedden. He took Kedden to where he was staying, and the two became a sadomasochistic relationship. It is unclear whether or not Fish forced Kedden to do these things, but in his confession, he implied that the man was intellectually disabled. After 10 days, Fish took Kedden to an old farmhouse where he began to, to torture him. The torture took place over two weeks. Fish eventually tied Kedden up and cut off half of his <coughs> I shall never forget his scream or t the look he gave me. Fish later recalled. <coughs> Sorry, I'm hella pissed. Um, he originally intended to kill Kedden, cut up his body, and take it home, but he feared the hot weather would draw attention to him. Instead, Fish poured peroxide over the wound, wrapped it in a Vaseline-covered handkerchief, left the $10 bill, and kissed Kedden goodbye and left. And then he said, took first train I could get back home, never heard of what become of him, and tried to find out. Well, if you weren't sure how much of a sh bag this guy was I um yeah this just this really just okay let's move on in January 1917 Fish's wife left him for John Straub a handyman who boarded with the Fish family I had to say hell yeah but I feel bad that the children were left with him and also and again I wouldn't care if it was just Fish because you know he's a <coughs> bag 
but considering the children stayed with him, yeah, I can't really be like, hell yeah, because those kids end up suffering because of it. Fish then went on to raise them as a single parent, and after his arrest, Fish told the newspaper while his, he began to have auditory hallucinations. He once wrapped himself in carpet saying that he was following the instructions of John the Apostle. While he was thought to never have physically attacked or abused his children, he did encourage them and their friends to paddle his buttocks with the same nail-studded paddle he used to abuse himself. Ay ay ay. He soon developed a growing obsession with cannibalism, often preparing himself a dinner consisting solely of Rami and sometimes serving it to his children. And about, so, okay, so I just need to interject again here. This is exactly what I was afraid of when I was a kid. And <laughs> I know that it's just like, where did you even get that idea? But see, like, it is proven that somebody did that before. So I wasn't completely insane when I was convinced of that. Um, that my parents were feeding us human means, so even though it wasn't true, it was just my paranoia and anxiety and lack of sleep. But anyways, in about 1919, he stabbed an intellectually disabled boy in Georgetown, Washington, D.C. Fish chose people who were either mentally handicapped or African-American as his victims, explaining that he would assume these people would not be missed when he killed them. <sighs> This just makes me so sad because it's not even like I can say, well, that doesn't happen anymore because it does. A lot of people who are people of color, predominantly black people and people of dark skin and darker skin tones tend to be, when they go missing, there's way less media coverage. Or something that continuously pisses me off is that when somebody is a person of color and they go missing or they were killed or whatever it is, they, the main media on TV, they always pick a picture that could be, like, anytime it's a white kid or somebody who, who is a lighter color tone, they'll put, like, their graduation picture. But then they'll pick a picture that can look really bad out of context for them when they're using them in main coverage media. And it's just, it's ridiculous. It honestly makes me, that was just a side tangent that really pissed me off. It just really reminds me that that's still a thing today and it's really frustrating. He would later occasionally pay boys to procure him other children. Fish tortured, mutilated, and murdered young children and with his implements of hell, which is a meat cleaver, a butcher knife, and a small handsaw. On July 11th, 1924, Fish found eight-year-old Beatrice Keel playing alone on her parents' Staten Island farm. He offered her some money to come help him look for rhubarb, and she was about to leave the farm when her mother chased Fish away. I was like, thank the Lord that this mother came out and like was like, get the hell away from my kid. Fish left, but returned later to the Keel's barn, where he tried to sleep, but was discovered by Hans Yield and forced to leave. During 1924, the 50-year-old Fish, suffering from psychosis, felt that God was this is honestly I would say it, it's alleged because I honestly feel like he brings this up later on and it is possible that he thought 
what I'm about to say, but I personally think it was more because he wanted to make an insanity defense. But you know, it is possible that he really did believe these things, not that it would have not held him accountable, even if he did. Like, yeah, my point is though, it felt like the way that things go on later in the trial, it just feels like it was, it, it just says that so then you would be able to get a sanity plea rather than go to jail or whatever it is that he was trying to avoid. But then again, I wouldn't know either. I just wanted to add my two cents in there. He felt that God was commanding him to torture and sexually mutilate children. Shortly before his abduction of Grace Bud, Fish attempted to test his implements of hell on a child he had been molesting named Cyril Quinn. Quinn and his friend were playing boxball on sidewalk. I don't know what a boxball is. I'm really curious about that. Anyways, when Fish asked them if they hadn't eaten lunch. They said they had not. He invited them into his apartment for sandwiches. While the two boys were wrestling on Fish's bed, they dislodged his mattress and underneath was a knife, small handsaw, and a meat cleaver. They became frightened and ran out of the apartment. Later on, in the year 1924, nine-year-old Francis McDonald was reported missing by his parents. He failed to return home after playing catch with friends in the Port Richmond neighborhood of Staten Island. A search was organized and his body was found hanging from a tree in a wooded area near his home. He had been sexually assaulted, then strangled with his suspenders. According to an autopsy, McDonald had also suffered ex extensive lacerations to his legs and abdomen. His left hamstring had almost entirely been stripped off of its flesh. Fish refused to claim responsibility for this, although he later stated that he intended to castrate the boy, but fled when he heard someone approaching the area. Later, in 1928, Fish was saw advertised in the Sunday edition of New York World that read, Young man, 18, wishes position in country, Edward Budd, 406 West 15th Street. On May 28, 1928, Fish then, 58 years old, visited the Budd family in Manhattan under the pretense of hiring Edward, which he would later regret because this had eventually led to his capture. He later confessed that he planned to tie Edward up, mutilate him, and leave him to bleed to death. He introduced himself as Frank Howard, a farmer from Farmingdale, New York. Fish promised to hire Bud and his new f and his friend Willie and said he would set send for them in a few days. He failed to show up, but he sent a telegraph to the Bud family apologizing and set a later date. When Fish returned, he met Grace Bud. He apparently changed his intended victim from Edward to Grace Bud and quickly made up a story about having to attend his niece's birthday party. He convinced the parents, Delia Flanagan and Albert Bud I, to let Grace accompany him to the party that, that evening. The elder Albert Bud was a porter for the United States Equitable Life Assurance Society. Grace had a younger sister, Beatrice, two older brothers, Edward and George Bud, and a younger brother, Albert Bud II. Grace left with Fish that day, but never returned. The police arrested 66-year-old superintendent Charles Edward Pope on September 5, 1930 as a suspect, accused by Pope's estranged wife. He spent 108 days in jail between his arrest and trial on December 22, 1930. He was found not guilty. In November 1934, an anonymous letter was sent to the girl's parents in which ultimately led to 
police to fish. Mrs. Budd was illiterate and could not read the letter herself, so she had her son read it to her. Honestly, this is something I can't even imagine how horrible this was for her. I think sometimes when we read these stories, especially as much as this story has been covered and how long ago it is, that we really kind of, especially as people who are really interested in true crime, we kind of distance and kind of over time get a little bit desensitized to it. But when you really put especially when you read it and do your research by yourself and read all of the letters and everything, I just, I cannot imagine the pain of not only the mother being read this horrible letter about her daughter, but also the fact that the son read it to her and had to read those disgusting words to his mother like I can't even imagine how horrible that was for him as well like it's it's just horrible the letter concerning the murder of Grace Budd however was found to be accurate in its description of the kidnapping and subsequent events although it was impossible to confirm whether or not fish had actually eaten parts of Grace's body the letter was delivered in an envelope that had a small hexagonal emblem with the letters NYPCBA, representing New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association. A janitor at the company told the police he had taken some of the stationery home, but left it at his rooming house at 200 East 52nd Street when he moved out. The landlady of the rooming house said Fish checked out of the, that room a few days later. She said that Fish's son sent him money and he asked her to hold his next check for him. William F. King was the chief of an investigator for the case. He waited outside the room until Fish returned. Fish agreed to go to the headquarters for questioning, then brandished a razor blade, dumbass. I, well, I'm glad he did because he ended up, <laughs> like, that just makes him look more guilty. King disarmed Fish and took him to the poli police head took him to the police headquarters. Fish made no attempt to deny the murder of Grace Budd, saying that he meant to go to the house to kill Edward Budd, Grace's brother. Fish said it never even entered his head to rape the girl, but he later claimed that to his attorney while kneeling on Grace's chest and strangling her, he did have two involuntary. This information was used at the trial to make the claim the kidnapping was sexually motivated, thus avoiding any mention of cannibalism. From here, I'm just going to backtrack a little bit to earlier we mentioned, I mentioned the McDonald's murder. So, McDonald's friend told the police that he was taken by an elderly man with a gray mustache. A neighbor also told the police he observed the boy with similar-looking man walking along a grassy path into the nearby woods. Frances's mother, Anna McDonald, said she saw the same man earlier that day. She told the reporters he came shuffling out. This description resulted in the mysterious stranger becoming known as the Gray Man. The McDonald murder remained unsolved until the murder of Grace Budd, when several eyewitnesses, among them the Staten Island farmers, Hans Kield positively identified Albert Fish as the odd stranger seen around Port Richmond on the day of Francis McDonald's disappearance. Richmond County District Attorney Thomas J. Walsh announced his intention to seek an indictment against Fish for the boy's murder. 
At first, Fish denied the charges. It was only in March 1935 after the conclusion of his trial for the Bud murder and his confession to killing Billy Gaffney that Fish confirmed to the investigators that he also raped and murdered Francis McDonald. When the McDonald confession was made public, the New York Day mayor wrote that the disclosure solidified Fish's the most vicious child slayer in criminal history. Elizabeth Gaffney visited Fish and Sing Sing, accompanied by Detective King and two other men. She wanted to ask him about her son's death, but Fish refused to speak to her. Fish began to weep and asked to be left alone. After two hours of asking him questions through his lawyers, James Dempsey, Mrs. Gaffney, gave up. She still was unconvinced that Albert Fish was her son's killer. I wanted to interject that because there, the McDonald murder, he ended up saying that he actually did rape and murder Francis McDonald, but he did it after he was already his confession of the Bud murder. Mother wasn't sure that it was, she wasn't really convinced it was him. And at the end of the day, we will never really 100% know, but I did want to add that with the McDonald murder, he did confess to it, but he did it only after the whole race bud incident, so, and trial and everything. So I, I just wanted to add that just so everybody can have that known, because I know that in some cases, some murderers will make false confessions because they want to be the best killer in there, so they won't become a target and things like that. At the end of the day, I wouldn't know, nobody would know except for whoever killed that poor kid. Just you as the listener could just think about it. Albert Fish's trial for the murder of Grace Bud began on March 11, 1935 in White Plains, New York. Fish's defense counsel was James Dempsey, a former prosecutor and one-time mayor of Peekskill, New York. The trial lasted for 10 days. Fish pleaded insanity and claimed to have heard several voices from God telling him to kill children. Several psychiatrists testified about Fish's sexual fetishes, which include sadism, masochism, flagellation, exhibitionism, voyeurism, picarism, cannibalism, coprophagia, urophilia, pedophilia, and infibulation. Try to say that ten times. Dempsey and his summation note Fish was a psychiatric phenomenon and that nowhere in the legal or medical records was there any other in individual who possessed so many sexual abnormalities. The defense's chief expert witness was Frederick Wortham, a psychiatric with an emphasis on child development who conducted psychiatric examinations for the New York Criminal Court. During two days of testimony, Wortham explained Fish's obsession with religion and specifically his preoccupation with the biblical story of Abraham and Isaac, Genesis 22, 1 and 24. Wortham said that Fish believed that similarly sacrificing a boy would be penance for his own sins and that even if the act himself was wrong, angels would prevent it if God did not approve. Fish attempted the sacrifice once before was thwarted when a car drove past. Edward Bud was the next intended victim, but he turned out to be larger than expected, so he settled on Grace. He knew Grace was female, it is believed that Fish perceived her as a boy. Wortham simply answered, he is insane. 
Gallagher cross-examined Wortham on whether Fish knew the difference between right or wrong. He responded that he did know, but that it was perverted knowledge based on his opinions of sin, atonement, and religion, and thus was an insane knowledge. The defense called two more psychiatrists to support Wortham's findings. The first of four rebuttal witnesses was Menace Gregory, the former manager of Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital. Honestly, I'm just going to interject here again. Bellevue Hospital, I don't know, as I'm reading it right now, that kind of reminds me of the name in Smallville. I don't know if anybody watched that show. I really loved it and I still love it. It doesn't matter how cheesy it gets, but it's like basically, it, it was like a the CW and it was like um, Superman growing up and usually when he would capture the meteor infected, they would go to a psychiatric hospital and I feel like it would sounded like Bellevue, but I don't know. I don't think so, but that's like what that reminded me of. Anyways, Fish was treated during 1930. He testified that Fish was abnormal but sane. Under cross-examination, Dempsey asked if chorophilia, urophilia, and pedophilia indicated a sane or insane person. Gregory replied that such a person was not mentally sick and that these were common perversions that were socially perfectly alright, and that Fish was no different from millions of other people. Some very prominent people who suffered the very same perversion. When asked whether Fish's causing himself pain indicated a mental condition, Lysenson, a second rebuttal witness, replied that it was masochism. Another defense witness was Mary Nicholas, Fish's 17-year-old stepdaughter. She described how Fish taught her and her brothers and sisters several games involving overtones of masochism and child molestation. Jesus Christ. None of the jurors doubted that Fish was insane, but ultimately, as one later explained, they felt he should be executed anyway. They found him to be sane and guilty, and the judge ordered the death sentence. Fish arrived at the prison in March 19. 1935. Executed on January 16th, 1936 in the electric chair at St. Singh. He entered the chamber at 11.06 p.m. and was pronounced dead three minutes later. He was buried in Sing Sing Prison Cemetery. His last words were reportedly, I don't even know why I'm here. According to, oh well, fuck you asshole. Anyways, according to one witness present, it took two jolts before Fish died creating the rumor that the apparatus was short-circuited by the needles that Fish inserted into his body. These rumors were later regarded as untrue as Fish reportedly died in the same fashion and time frame as others in the electric chair. At a meeting with reporters after the execution, Fish's lawyer James Dempsey revealed that he was in possession of his client's final statement. This amounted to several pages of handwritten notes that Fish apparently penned in hours just prior to his death. When pressed by the assembled journalists to reveal the document's contents, Dempsey refused, stating, I will never show it to anyone. It was the most filthy string of obscenities that I have ever read. And that goes to show just how crappy it is that like right after this guy died, his freaking like lawyer was like, hell no am I ever gonna freaking say this or show this to anybody. But yeah, 
that was the story of Albert Fish. As I said before, this is a very well-known case to a lot of people that are interested in true crime. And I plan in the future, honestly, to do more lesser-known cases. Predominantly, I want to do cases that don't get enough media attention because they're a part of a minority group. But this particular story, I just wanted to mention as a first story because it is something that has terrified me ever since I was a kid. And honestly, if I knew about this story when I was a kid, it probably would have freaking broke me. I would have been so terrified and been like, this guy is somewhere, like, anybody could be Albert Fish. Like, oh my god, that, that would have been horrible. Art provided by at Eggwitch. You can find her on her Instagram. It's spelled E-G-G-W-H-I-C-H. And music provided by a Fiverr creator. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.